Thank you. Praise the Lord for such beautiful offerings. Think about music and how it can be so powerful to lift our minds up to Jesus and so powerful to deepen our love of self. Thank you for that. That was lovely. Let's pray. Father, we've gathered in your house this morning, and we want to thank you for the privilege of gathering, for belonging to you, for belonging to each other, for being part of this heavenly family. And now, Lord, I pray that you'll bless us as we spend these moments in your word. Please trigger in our minds and touch our hearts so that when we are finished here this morning, we desire to worship you even more than when we came. Now, Lord, we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning is a special morning for the Kelly family in that we are in the, the stages of celebrating. Tomorrow morning, or tomorrow afternoon, I should say, our third son will be married. And this is a journey that requires great stamina. And I'm not even the father of the bride, so we need to pray. This morning I want to go on a journey with you, and I want to reflect especially on the very nature of God as it relates to the elements of marriage. I've entitled my message in the beginning. If you'll take your Bibles and open up to the book of Genesis. Genesis, as the story tells it, is the proclamation of God's word and the presence as a result of that word that brings this world and our existence into being. Genesis chapter 2 verse 21 it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they should be called one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Timothy Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, will point out that the story of the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. And there's something about this metaphor that is superbly important for us individually, certainly if we're married. There may be some of you sitting here today who are no longer able to sit by your spouse. 
It could be that they've passed. It's possible that your original love has rejected you and the pain of a relationship that dies has been a pain that not only you carried up to the serving of the divorce papers, but that you still carry in your heart. There is something so central to this commitment that so shapes us individually, not just as a couple into which we become one, that God chooses it as the first and the last chapter, not only of the story of creation and redemption, but it turns out to be the first chapter of the miracles of Jesus as well. Take your Bibles and go back to the book of Revelation chapter 13. In the book of Revelation chapter 13, we read this very interesting verse. And it just so happens that if you're reading from a New American Standard, it's not a very good translation. So I'm going to read it from an older version. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. It says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb, the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Now I want to take this storyline of marriage and I want to weave it deeply into the fabric of God's commitment to you and me. And I want us to understand that there can be no real love without commitment. If there's one thing that defines the word love, it's commitment. And when I sit down with the people that I do premarital counseling with, I just ask them this one question, why is this marriage going to work? We are living in a wilderness of real love, and we are living in an environment in which it appears that marriage is an act of convenience so much so that sociologists and family therapists can talk about starter marriages today. A starter marriage. I want to tell you this morning, it's very good news that God did not have a starter relationship with the human race. It's very good news that from the very beginning, God understood what love would cost, what free choice would exact from him. And when we read in the book of Revelation as we're coming to the end, we discover that before God begins this family affair, this love relationship with the human race, he counts all the cost. Jesus did not make it easy to follow him. As a matter of fact, the masses all eventually left him. But if there's one thing that Jesus did is he respected the right and the privilege and the prerogative of a human being to make a decision. But he never placated with sin. He always left all of the cards on the table, as it were, so a person could decide, I want this or I want this. And the very right of deciding is what Jesus committed to in the very beginning when he made us in his image, knowing knowing what this relationship with the human race would cost. If there are any 
sublime themes in Scripture, if there are any noble moments of reflection, the commitment of God to you, the commitment to God to us as a human race, because when in the councils of heaven, the Godhead makes a decision to create human beings, this is the beginning of a relationship that's going to cost heaven everything. God never designed that anyone enters into a relationship with Him without first counting the cost. And really the best metaphor of divine love that He can give us is marriage. If we're going to take a human relationship, kids come, kids go. Ideally, we raise them to self-government. But the very fabric of the other one that you commit yourself to, the other man if you're a woman, the other woman if you're a man, this becomes the module through which God develops and reveals and rejoices as He watched two people grow. Yes, when God formed the creatures of the world and finally formed Adam, when he took a rib from Adam's side and he formed the woman, God was in the process of coming to the penultimate moment. But the real quintessential highlight of the storyline happened long before any action was put in place. Before God was in a position of creating a man and a woman, God had made a decision about what creating that man and woman would cost. And so when we sit in a premarital session and I ask them, why is this marriage going to work? I just want one word answer, and that is commitment. We made a promise. Timothy Keller in his book also quotes some longitudinal study that says, if you're in a bad marriage and you stay in it for five years, the marriage is likely to be much better after that period of time. Why? Because feelings come and feelings go. And sometimes the things you didn't think you were a part of being a problem in, you discover in that period of time. Some of that's me. If there is a instrumentality, if there's a module through which we pass through life in which there's any modicum of a chance that I might learn something about myself in this world that wants to affirm me into the most dysfunctional self-denial and joy, joyless oblivion, in this world, the best chance you've got is to be married to somebody who loves you enough to say, uh-uh, this isn't right. That doesn't work. You need to grow. This kind of commitment is what gives and makes the difference between ordinary mediocre living and the kind of living that takes you high into the sky. And I know something about it. It's not just that I've watched for these 30 years people who make sometimes almost zero commitment. I once, as a very young pastor, before I was even ordained, presided over, I don't know if I could say I even presided over it because I wasn't ordained. You know, a pastor in his own district before he's ordained can preside over a wedding. But when you're called out of your district, you can't preside over it. The world church is waiting to put some kind of testing period and stamp of approval on you. It's good. I knew nothing or next to nothing, even though I had a seminary degree. It was a valuable degree. I'm not diminishing the degree. 
but in regards to so much more that I had to learn. But even I was a little bit appalled as two people stood there, and I want to tell you, they promised nothing to each other. I learned since then that if you're going to write your own vows, they're going to be something that somebody needs to look at because after the pastor shares the homily and you share your vows, there's a prayer, and the prayer is to seal the promise. But if there were no promises made except to self-actualize, we've got a problem. And you wouldn't be surprised if I were to tell you that marriage didn't make it. You see, we're living in an age where we think that somehow it is the lack of inhibitions in a relationship that sets you free. And the truth of the matter is, it's a divine inhibition that sets you free to actually bond with somebody and know the oneness God designed. It's learning to tell yourself no so you can experience yes in a holy way, the beauty of holiness. And so from the very beginning, there were things that God made decisions about, elements of His person. And when he breathed the breath of life into Adam, and when he performed this amazing miracle for the woman, God knew what he was doing. He was making a commitment. We live in an age in which people don't want to make commitments. People hardly want to sign up to volunteer to to do things in many churches. This church, by God's grace, doesn't suffer with that so significantly. I'm not saying we're beyond it. But what is your level of making promises and keeping them? Where is the thermometer or the the register of what you're willing to do for somebody else even when it's inconvenient and it doesn't work? And how well do you keep your promises? If there's one thing that a marriage is based on, it's based on this sense that no matter how I feel, the promise I made at some point in time is going to limit my potential for human failure because the head is over the rest and decisions will be made. Turn over to the book of Revelation. We're coming to the end, not of the sermon, but of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad. Give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words, or these are true words of God. Now this is an interesting verse. It's so glorious. The message is so good. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours, of your brother, who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, in the margin of my Bible, I have one little phrase that's written. Here's John. The good news comes. The night of woe is coming to an end. 
exile and loneliness. It's going to be over. He's an old man. He's receiving this amazing revelation. He's paid a high price to follow Jesus. And the angel shows up and he says, listen, it's not just some quiet, nondescript, under-the-radar kind of event that's going to put things back together. No, this has been the hope of the ages. The desire of the ages has had a desire for this to happen. And when God brings us all home, Jesus grabs onto a, a phrase here that is, that is just ripe with joy and, and festivity and celebration. And he says, this is the marriage of the Lamb, and this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John's mind must be moving. But written in the margin of my Bible, as John wants to bow down to this angel, and he says, don't do that, because I am of your brethren. I am a servant of yours and your brethren. I have written in the margin of my Bible, we are a family. Now listen, there's nothing more beautiful than a family in which God is enshrined. He's ensconced in the heart of the husband. He is held up in the heart of the wife. The children have decided not only to honor and obey their father and their mother, but the originator of this great design. But all of heaven is, a, is in a journey of readiness for this event. And when we come down to the very end, not only are those saints going to go marching in, but Jesus is going to gird himself. And at that long table that stretches for miles... There's going to be a celebration of togetherness as what was designed in the beginning was derailed by self-centeredness has been put back together by the blood of Jesus himself. And Jesus, at the expense of complete rejection, even the apparent rejection of his father, although his father was there at that cross. Now, Let's go back to the gospel, John chapter 2. John's mind must have been working. This will become the first of all of Jesus' miracles. And let me put that in, let me put that in perspective. Jesus works 35 recorded miracles in the scriptures. This miracle predates the next miracle that Jesus will work by one year. So this miracle, when, when Mary says, it's not yet, when, when Jesus says to Mary, it's not yet my time, this miracle is one year in front of the next miracle that will be written down for you and I to read. I'm not saying there weren't other miracles written down. But this miracle gets out in front of all the other miracles by a year. There are five disciples with Jesus at this point in time. His family is related, if you accept the testimony of the desire of ages, his family is related to the people that are going to be married. And we're in, we're in the midst of something that is not accidental. It's not so much that Jesus' time is not here. In one sense, he's been declared... Uh, you know, to have this moment, this anointing from heaven above. But we find Jesus in this moment not meeting the exact expectations of his mother who's hoping that he will declare himself Messiah. This time, 
for the declaration of Messiah is not here. Jesus saves that up for the few days before he's crucified. And it may actually precipitate the crucifixion. John chapter 2. On the third day, verse 1, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her woman, which is a oriental reference of nobility and dignity. We don't say this anymore. If I said to my wife, woman, I would be frustrated with her. And she would not take it as a term of endearment. But in oriental culture, this phraseology had that sense of true honor. Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Some commentators believe more. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. And this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I think one of the first things to note in this narrative is the fact that Jesus chose to be at this event. There is a social power that Jesus was going to exercise, and coming to the event, he believed, would bring a measure of honor to his mother, and it also, it would be an opportunity at some level for the kingdom of God to advance. I'd like to suggest that especially the younger generation upon whom the ends of the earth have come, that there's a strategized, designed effort to make sure the person you're most into is you and that the work of socializing is a work that's a little bit too inconvenient for you. Choosing to be social is choosing to be friendly. Choosing to actually go and make a positive event more positive or a less positive event more positive is an important Christian grace. The power of love is intentional, not just receptional. And there's something about going to this event that was going to bring honor. As a matter of fact, years ago in my last district, you know, I, I, uh, I shared a message that built itself around the French abbreviation RSVP. The honor of your presence is requested. And of course, who shows up has a lot to do with how much celebrating goes on by those that are throwing the party, as it were. But Jesus cho chooses to be in this place. And not only in this place, we find Jesus willing to make this celebration something better. The other thing that I think is super important to see about this social side of Jesus' life is that he found joy 
in these social constructs that he created. And there's probably few things that's more beautiful than new love, except for one thing, and that's tested, tried, and true old love. We have people sitting here today in this congregation that have been almost married 70 years. These are the sages. These are the wisdom seekers, and they are the wisdom givers. The other thing I want to caution people against is, especially our younger group, is that it's easy to look at your parents' marriage, and some of them may not have been good, and say, that's not exactly what I want. Some of that is normal, and it's in all people's hearts. At the same time, if your parents have managed to stay married, there's a lot more that's understood between their hearts, even though some of it doesn't look quite as good to you. There's a lot more good in that commitment than we can imagine. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and they went. And God is inviting all of us this morning to that Revelation 19:7 event. And you get to go. And of course, Jesus took advantage of this significant paradigm of weddings to make some really powerful moments. It's not like we have this universal sense of salvation for all. There is the parable of a wedding garment. If you're going to be at the wedding, you have to comply with the invitation of the one who gave the privilege of presence. In other words, we saw even in Revelation chapter 19 that the preparation of the bride is put on the fine linen of Christ's righteousness, and that righteousness is the choosing of a life directed and filled by the Holy Spirit. Yes, the dynamic of the ten virgins some who did not have enough oil, so they missed out. It would be wonderful if everyone listening here today could take away the anticipatory joy of God at seeing you at the table. That's everything He wants. The question is, between now, while we're in this betrothed stage to God, as it were, as we anticipate this time of true unity and coming together, can Jesus actually prepare us for the event? Or have we said to him, hands off, leave that alone, God. If there's one thing that God wants more than anything else, is he wants to give back the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, and he wants to give to all their children what he wanted them all to always have, minus the liabilities of sin. In that journey, Jesus comes to have a relationship with us. And by the way, it's I'm quite convinced that the Sabbath itself was to be the celebration of God's desire to be with us. And when we don't desire to be with God, and when we don't desire to be with God's people, and when we don't really desire the time the Sabbath affords us to know God and know ourselves, something's wrong spiritually. And if I wasn't a human being and hadn't been across that spectrum, there's nothing better for a married person than being with the one you love. You can stay up till one o'clock in, in the evening doing things you would do for anybody else, like getting ready for a wedding. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I have a very good marriage. 
Praise the Lord. And it is one of the most expensive energy, relational energy experiences I've ever participated in. And just like every other quality thing in life, it's absolutely worth it and then some. But I'm afraid we become so superficial that unless somebody's a part of the great esteem party that's going on in society, they don't really get a listening audience from us. The hardest things we go through in life, God designed that we have somebody to help us. And sometimes the help they have to offer, we don't really want. But it doesn't mean we don't need it. Jesus put us together. And if the together is not with a married spouse, it's with a family. And in that journey, real love is to be discovered. And real love is not always feeling really good about yourself. If we want to have the best, then we're going to have to make sure we're willing to grow with the one who architects relations and situations so that sometimes the things that are in us that are coming out that we didn't know were there can be dealt with. And there's nothing like having somebody who loves you with a deep level of commitment who won't abandon you as you'd like to abandon yourself. But it takes a lot more work than most people are put into it. And if there's anything wrong with our politically correct, dysfunctional, self-serving society, it's the fact that it's robbing people of the real joy that comes on the other side of climbing some relational mountains. And in 36 years, we've climbed some. There is work involved in all healthy relationships. You make phone calls you don't want to make. You sit through experiences you don't want to sit through. You spend money on things you don't want to really spend. You learn to like things you don't naturally like. And on the other side, you end up with a, an experience that you never could have architected, but God himself puts you on a journey with another person. Sometimes we'll talk inside the paradigm of family as well. And the work that's involved in having something quality relationship-wise will never change. Jesus goes to celebrate at a wedding, and he ends up being the central savior of the festivities his mother actually is nudging him into her idea of him. But I want you to notice, Jesus is defining who he is apart from his relationship with his mother. Fifth Bible Commentary, page 921. When Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Their comment is this, according to these clear-cut but courteous words, Jesus sought to make clear to her the distinction between his relationship to her as a son of man and as the son of God. I find this very powerful because in every good marriage, I'll talk from a man's perspective, a woman has to be able to articulate to her husband the commitment she has to him is in second place to the commitment she has to her creator and redeemer. Every good relationship has boundaries, not in the sense of don't trouble me, I can't be drawn into arenas that are a little uncomfortable with me. If there's a pet peeve I have as a pastor, it's when people take the boundaries concept and they insulate themselves from difficult and challenging circumstances because they've got boundaries. Don't bother me. Stay away from me. I've got boundaries. That's not how boundaries work. 
Boundaries weren't designed to limit you from being in the arenas that are uncomfortable. Boundaries are designed to save you from being a prisoner, usually to a self-serving kind of love that wants to please in an unhealthy way beyond unhealthy boundaries. But it's not designed to be a place to say, no, I'm not going to get involved there because it, it starts to get me engaged in ways that might not be healthy for me. The world is full of all kinds of unhealthy, hopefully growing people. Some aren't growing. Jesus is defining here a few relational things. And in effect, he's saying to his mother for whom he served and honored for 30 years and will continue to honor even in this moment where he can. There is somewhat of a different relationship now. I've begun my public ministry. And what you want, I can't do in the sense of giving you permission to to solve all the doubts in the back of your mind about what the angel said being true and me being the Messiah. I'm not going to proclaim Messiahship here, but I am going to help you. She knew that. His mother said to the servant, whatever he says to you, do it. And there must be the simplest summation of a happy life ever written in the Scriptures. (laughs) Not only had the wine run out, But the truth of the matter is, without this God directive operative in this moment, and without this God directive operative in our lives, the joy is going to run out as well. Whatever he says to you, do it. So what is he saying to you right now? And how is he speaking to you? If you're married, where are the next steps to come up a little bit higher? If you're not married and inside just the journey as a Christian, what is God telling you to do? And by the way, as a pastor, I've made it a practice of my life to be sure I never get between a person and God because God will always ask for more than I ask for. God will always expect you to do more than a human being will usually ask for. What is Jesus saying? Learning to hear the voice of God is the essential and elemental journey of life. It just so happens that in this moment, Jesus was physically present, and the servants had been directed by the mistress of the celebration, and they were now under clear directions, do whatever he says to you to do it. There are a lot of people who relegated the voice of God to only the safe precincts of what they predetermined will make them happy. And what they don't understand is that on the other side, there's a greater happiness. Now, Jesus is going to take water and turn it into wine. And these men are going to fill these purification pots, these pots for cleansing themselves from defilement with less desirables like the Gentiles. And when each of those 20 to 30 gallon pots are full, there's going to be more than enough. And whether the water is turned into wine in the pot, which I don't think so, or whether the water is turned into wine when somebody is told, take some out and bear it to the master of the festivities. At some point in time, God rearranges the molecules and the elements that make something that's essential to life the universal solvent, the one thing we all need, and he turns it into something better. And whatever we have when we offer it up to God, this is how the formula always works. 
Whatever we bring to God, especially when He directs us to bring it, when it's offered up, it ends up being something better. You might be in a moment in a relational experience right now where what you have isn't terribly good. If you want it to become something better, then it's important that whatever Jesus says for you to do, you do it, no matter how uncomfortable it is. How would you feel? I mean, come on, let's put the, let's put the servants front and center here in this message. So you know you put water in the pot, and you know you've been told to take a cup of it to the master of the feast. When you dip the water in the pot, does it look like the unfermented fruit of the vine? Which is what this was, absolutely. Jesus would never produce something to destroy the brain from which the decisions of life are made. So, as you're carrying the cup all the way to the master, does it still look like water in the cup to you? My guess is yes, because God has this penchant for waiting to the last minute to do something. And so you're probably wondering, why am I standing here in front of this master of the feast handing him a cup of water? But when he puts that cup to his lips, by the time he looks into it, it looks different. And if you're the, the lead servant and you're expecting the great embarrassment, but instead you get the great affirmation, things are going on in people's hearts and minds that nobody else truly understands because nobody else looked into those pots. You may be staring into a pot full of water and it may not be the most best looking clean cut source of Aquafina. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes there's something drastically different just one step away. It might be in regards to a spiritual relationship inside the family of God. It might be in regards to a human friendship. It might be that something inside of you is going to change when obedience moves you from resistance to the Spirit to submission. Something actually transformed in that moment. And not only is the celebration saved, but the affirmation is that this is the best that I've ever had. There are still seven disciples yet to be chosen. There's still a whole story of miracles, but the next one that will be written down is the nobleman from Cana, same city, by the way, whose son is healed. I want to end this morning by reminding you that Jesus so desires this intimate relationship with us And marriage so reflects the desire for that intimacy that Jesus paid the absolute highest price for us to have the absolute best life. Number one, before the foundation of the world, he had a plan. His plan was to give you the Sabbath. 
a day in which you could rejoice in your nearness to God. But if the six days of your week you have no time for God, the Sabbath is not a celebration. It may be a cultural habit. It may be a social meeting place for your friends. It may be a duty. But if there's one thing that God desires, it's intimacy, it's relational closeness. Nothing makes God happier than being with the ones that He loves. And nothing makes God happier than being loved by the ones He loved the most. What is it in our lives that could be actually in the way of meaningful, loving relationships in the now with human beings, but also in the way with God. I want you to know that when God made this world and He counted the cost, He made a little module to keep love alive and to keep closeness available. It was called the Sabbath. It didn't exist before, but it will exist in eternity because this new, deeper relationship that He has with the human race, deeper than it would have ever been had there been no sin, He made a metaphor or a symbol of this experience in marriage and he left the Sabbath as a way to keep the relationship with heaven alive through the promise that one would come. That one has come. I want you to understand that Jesus, who gave the highest level of thoughtfulness to the final form of creation, Adam and Eve, and took two and made them one, it is a miracle which is why Solomon can write about the miraculous nature, things that are too far, too above him. And marriage is one of them. When he can talk about setting, setting in the Song of Solomon as a seal upon his heart, for love is as strong as death. And if one were to give all the riches of the world for love, it'd be utterly scorned. When you've been loved, you've entered into the highest order of joy and the sense of heaven's presence no wonder the devil's out to destroy it with superficial, shallow living. No wonder with lack of commitment, he wants to deprive the church of one final description and give the world an experience of what it is to be loved. And by the way, this church is built on the strength of its marriages, first to Christ and then to each other. But when Jesus comes to the very end of his ministry, the worst thing that could happen to Jesus is what happens He's abandoned, he's rejected, he's denied, he's betrayed, he is scorned and he mocked, he's separated from humanity, he's hung between heaven and earth. And finally, the darkness of our sin closes him in so completely that he cannot sense the presence of his Father. This is the kind of commitment that moves us to get out of our comfort zones and develop a larger comfort with an intentional love. And this morning... I want you to know that Francis Bacon said, hope is a good breakfast, but a poor supper. God designed that in every single day, we should meet with him in the beginning so that in the end, it could be better than it was in the beginning. Some are struggling spiritually listening to me here today because you have no connection with God. This sermon is the only real connection you had this week. And you might have listened to Christian radio for a little while, maybe not. Some have terrible marriages because nobody can get through. Our hearts are hardened to the Holy Spirit and they're especially hardened to the people who amplify the voice of the Spirit. There are some listening to me here today whose journey of commitment is, as J.I. Packer said, religion in American was, 3,000 miles wide and two inches deep. 
This morning, friends, the commitment of Christ that leads to all growth, the commitment in the beginning, the celebration in the end, the joy along the way of this closeness to God, Jesus himself leads the way in the committedness that takes something bad and makes it better and takes something that's better and makes it joyful and glorious. I'm appealing to you. Are you willing to do whatever Jesus says? I've said things to my wife I never ever want to have to go across my lips again. I'm not talking about ugly, mean things, although we've had our fair share of problem solving. I'm talking about revelations of self. The only safety for a relationship is commitment. And this morning, I'm calling this church, every married person, every person that desires to be married, to make Jesus Christ absolutely first and best in their life so that when He talks, you can listen and you can go from the ordinariness of what the world has to offer to something different because we did what He said. May God help us at home, at church, at work, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters in Christ, whoever it may be, to know that the beginning of a glorious journey of a happy ever after ending is doing whatever he says to do. And once that's been done, eventually, maybe not as quickly as water borne in a cup to the master of the feast, things will get better, at least on the inside, if not on the outside. May God help each one of us to mirror the commitment of Christ in the commitment of our marriage and our commitment to God's family, a commitment to those who are not yet a part of God's family. And may we rejoice in what's coming. John falls down. He's so happy he has to worship. He says, don't do that. I'm just your servant, a fellow brother, and I'm part of the family. But that marriage supper is coming, and Jesus is looking forward to serving you. There's a lot of work between here and there, but it's all worth it, and the joy only grows. May God bless us as we make those commitments again as a people.